Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we are going to be discussing the No Child 2020 initiative, which the Irish Times launched last Saturday. But first, uh, lots of breaking news, and it's all about Brexit, not surprisingly at the moment. Pat Leahy, our political editor, is with me in studio. Pat, the lead story in this morning's Irish Times, government strongly rejects EU hard border suggestion. What exactly happened yesterday? Okay, so every day there's a press briefing uh, in the Commission building and at yesterday morning's briefing, the Commission's chief spokesman, whose name is Margaritas Shinas, who's a Greek gentleman, uh, answered a question that he's been asked on a number of occasions before in various guises, in various contacts contexts in which lots of people around Europe and here have been asked and they've all managed to dodge the question. That question is, will there be a hard border in Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit at the end of March? Because that's what EU regulations and WTO regulations would seem to require. And instead of kicking this back to the Irish government, saying we're working on this and we have the backstop, etc., etc., as he would usually do, he said, well, if you're asking me to speculate... Well, there will be a hard border. And that was the first time yesterday that a commission spokesman has said anything like that on the record. And not surprisingly, an awful lot of people sat up and took notice. And uh, I think the news was relayed pretty swiftly to Dublin, where I was speaking to people all day yesterday about it, where people were very taken aback, I think. Not that the commission might privately believe this, but that it would choose to say it in public at this point in uh, in this point in time. Now, lots of people were saying, oh, you know, it was a bit of a slip of the tongue. He didn't mean to say it. He was talking in hypotheticals. I'm not really sure I buy any of that. My experience of speaking to and observing the European Commission is that it is not really an organisation that tends to do things by accident. It's not improvisational. It doesn't... Not by its nature. Moment. But even on the people that work in it tend not to be. But even if you, so to speak, give them the benefit of the doubt and you think that, okay, he, he, he slightly misspoke, nobody is suggesting that this isn't what lots of people are saying in private. Because, as I said at the beginning, this is what EU rules and WTO rules would appear to re- to well, require. Well, yeah, I mean, just to go back to what you said. I mean, this is a state, on one level, this is just a statement of the bleeding obvious. To say that the rules require it, I suppose, is a statement of the obvious. To say that there will be a hard border in Ireland and the rules will be applied at a time when the Irish government, as it did again yesterday, came out and said, there will not be a hard border in Ireland. We will have to find a way around it, essentially, uh, is, is what they were saying, is not a statement 
uh, of uh, of the obvious. And I think it is a sign, you know, that things are beginning to fray. That uh, both in 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 Brussels and in Dublin, people are realizing that they cannot really depend on London to be a calm and rational actor as uh, as we head towards the end game over uh, over the next two months and that no deal preparations and this was ordered by the last European Council and preparations have been going on since and indeed before that for a hard border that really serious preparations of a practical and a legal nature now need to be taken to account for the eventuality that may not come to pass but looks more and more likely of uh, of a no-deal Brexit. So there's, the two thi- there's two things I want to ask you about that. First thing is, some of our listeners may have heard Michael Creed, the Minister for Agriculture, twisting in the wind on Morning Ireland as he tried again and again and again to answer the straightforward question of what happens on the Irish border on uh, on March the 30th um, by referring back to what the Irish government expected and how excellent the withdrawal agreement was and how he anticipated that and wouldn't answer the question, I think about 10 times, it was almost a kind of Paxman-esque sort of a, a motion. That strategy... They got away with it up to now. And it's a kind of, it's a typical political strategy. I can't possibly talk in hypotheticals about something that might happen in the future. This is a real possibility on the agenda in two months' time. I mean, they can't get out of that corner. They have to, they have to say something about it I rather think than that's, we hope it doesn't happen. I think that's the difficulty that the Irish government is now faced. And Simon Coveney said much the same thing all day yesterday. And Leo Varadkar said a version of it uh, in the doll when he was... Uh, uh, when he was addressing this issue yesterday and they have said previously is that you know the way to avoid this is the withdrawal agreement with with the backstop well we know that but it is now clear that that might not be a runner maybe it will but it is as you say a realistic prospect that it won't and the Irish government's position up until now has been we are not making any preparations for a hard border and that's a fair enough line to take and but it is its line has also been that we are not making any preparations to avoid a hard border in the case of a no deal brexit and that's the bit of it that i'm not sure will be sustainable for much longer so you talk about all this fraying around the edges what's the most negative construction you could put upon that statement yesterday is is there is there a fear in dublin that um, that the centre of gravity or the priorities are moving. There's always there was always a fear. It was always spoken about over the last few years that at some point the the the, the real power in the EU would decide to cut its losses and forget about. And Ireland. this has been the British uh, one of the British positions as well that ultimately uh, you know Germany would pressure Ireland, or the European Commission would pressure Ireland to give way on its. Demands to give way on the uh, on on the backstop if the if the British held out, and as you can imagine, this is currently much discussed in Dublin. My own view is 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 that it's not quite as blunt as that. I don't think that, given the assurances and that have been made by the EU to Ireland and the solidarity that has been displayed up until now, I don't think that the EU will try to force Ireland to abandon uh, abandon its position. But I think what may be going on 
is that the commission is signalling that there are consequences to sticking to that position. And amongst those consequences may be the construction of some sort of border apparatus, not necessarily on the border, but clearly if the the UK is a third country and is out with no transition period, no deal, then some regulations will be necessary to govern trade and customs relations between those two separate entities. That is not just a matter of EU rules, it's a matter of WTO rules. One thing that struck me yesterday was, and it was echoed in Michael Creed's Morning Ireland interview this morning, but one thing that struck me yesterday was the frequency with which Simon Coveney was using the phrase physical infrastructure at the border. He wasn't talking about a border or a hard border. He repeatedly used the phrase physical infrastructure at the border. And it may be, I'm speculating now, and it may be that there is some thinking going on about how those, the relationship between in, in, in trade and customs terms might be, uh, might be arranged after a no-deal Brexit without physical infrastructure at the border. And is it not possible or maybe even probable that at some point when uh, discussions are going on between the Irish government and central, uh, the EU in Brussels, that as this, you know, terrible vista approaches, that uh, one side or the other might say, well, look, it looks as if this is going to be a no deal, which is the worst possible outcome from the point of view of the argument you've been making for the last three years about the peace process on the border and the island of Ireland. Are we not better off to perhaps concede something on the backstop? Are we not better off with a five-year time-limited backstop, as, as was suggested by the, by the Polish government this week, which gives us the opportunity to persuade, you know, a, possibly a new British government to go for the, the softest of soft Brexits than to be faced with this catastrophe in two months' time? On the record, everybody says no. I would be amazed if that possibility is not explored. And... And I'll tell you why, because otherwise you are left with the situation where Ireland would be by insisting, by sticking to its position on the backstop, Ireland and the EU, by sticking on their position on the backstop, were effectively bringing about a hard border, which is what the backstop was designed to avoid. Essentially, we would be saying we'll take a hard border now rather than the possibility of a hard border in uh, in three years so I think that that possibility would at least be uh, would at least be explored the background to all this and you cannot take the dysfunction in London out of it is that we don't know what outcome that will have in London but it does appear and Dennis Staunton reports on this in this morning's paper that uh, an, um, that the Commons may vote next week on an amendment which suggests that it would ratify the treaty if there was a, uh, a, a, a time limit on the backstop. Now, how such a time limit could possibly be introduced into either as a protocol to the withdrawal treaty or, or, or an addendum to it. I don't think the actual text of the treaty will be reopened, but it is possible that some sort of, of, of protocol or codicil could be added to it, or whether it would be done 
in the future relationship uh, declaration which accompanies that treaty, uh, I, I, I simply don't know and have no information on. But that would be one way uh, around it. And I would be surprised if in the coming weeks that possibility is not uh, at least canvassed. Pat, thanks for that. Stick with us. We'll be discussing No Child 2020 after this. It shall be the first duty of the Government of the Republic to secure that no child shall suffer hunger or cold from lack of food, clothing or shelter, but that all shall be provided with the means and facilities requisite for their proper education and training as citizens. That sentence is from the Democratic Programme of the First Doll, which was issued 100 years ago this week. But how well has the independent Irish state lived up to that commitment over the past century? And what could it do now to meet it? Uh, no Child 2020 is an Irish Times initiative which aims to provide a sustained focus on child welfare and on children's issues. And to discuss it, I'm joined in studio by our own Fintan O'Toole and by Tanya Ward of the Children's Rights Alliance. First of all, Fintan, can you just set the context for the Democratic Programme 100 years ago this week? What's in it and what was it about? It's a remarkable document because it's very clear, punchy, straight. There's no real rhetoric in it. It's know? not grandiose or flowery. It's not or grandiose. Like that, and, no. you know, people in Ireland, it's very interesting the way people don't know about the Democratic Programme. And it's almost like they, they, they instinctively read it into the proclamation of 1916 where they talk about treating all the children of the nation equally. You know, how 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 powerfully emotive that phrase is for us, even though, of course, it wasn't referring to children at all. It was sure. referring to les enfants de la patria, the children of the nation. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very kind of standard piece of kind of boilerplate nationalist rhetoric. Whereas this is about the children. You know, it's about actual children. It's a really bold statement where it says the first duty of the rep- government of the republic. So it's not saying, you know, and by the way, when we get around to it, we'll do all sorts of nice stuff for kids. It's basically kind of saying you will know effectively whether we are a republic or not by the way in which we treat children. And it's, it's radicalism then is, is that it doesn't just, I mean, it's, it's very clear about, you know, just, just really basic stuff about food, shelter, education, healthcare, those four things. And then it says, as citizens of the republic. And it's easy to miss just how radical this is in 1919. You know, the dominant way of thinking about children is very much still as future citizens. You know, we, we, we might have to. So a lot of the talk, you know, coming out of the First World War is that we have to kind of, you have to kind of feed your children. You know, make them physically strong because particularly the male children will be the the soldiers of the future, and the female children, of course, will be you know the mothers of the future. But they're not seen in their own right. You know, what was amazing about this document and how well written and how well thought through it is. So even though it's very simple. That statement that we're not talking about children as future citizens, we're talking about them as citizens now. We're talking about them as, you know, a core part of our republic. (laughs) They're not something we're kind of hatching for future years. So it's a very radical, moving, direct statement. But everything you say there, I immediately think... What a yawning chasm there is yeah. then between that statement and the reality that followed. And, you know, that, that's, of course, the shocking thing about it, which is, which is how, how come you have this very clear, radical, profound statement of our values, our collective values around children? And then, you know, we know we don't necessarily have to go into all the sort of detail of it, but the actual, you know, uh, of course, in the extreme, you know, the industrial schools, for example, the mother and baby homes, I mean, the, the way in which so many children were, 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 were appallingly treated. Uh, but also, if you think about our education system, for example, um, I've, I've just been kind of writing a piece um, for a future publication about, uh, it's very interesting, like, for example, when Maria Montessori came to 
Dublin in 1934, I think, you know, who was kind of the great uh, pioneer of the idea of education, you know, the idea of the child as an autonomous person. And that, you know, education for the child had to be about creating very disciplined structures, but then within that, the child could learn for herself or himself. And the teacher was there to facilitate the child, you know, that kind of radical idea, which we now kind of take for granted. The attacks on Maria Montessori from... Uh, you know, the, the most powerful kind of intellectuals in the Catholic Church and Irish education at the time, you know, are ferocious, you know, talking about blasphemy and, you know, this almost hatred of any idea that the child might be an autonomous thing, you know, the idea of controlling the child, of of, of the child having to be moulded and shaped. I mean, all the we sort of things... We kind of characterise this as very much a Catholic thing, but it wasn't necessarily... No, it's, of its time... Absolutely not. And, 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 and what was very interesting about leaving, the, you know, that was looking <clears> at... So, so you have some religious orders, for example, the Ursulines and the Dominicans, for example, example, were, were very pro-Montessori, right, you know, and of course this came down to social class a lot of it. So a lot of the time, you know, for, for a lot of kids growing up in Ireland, Ireland has always been a great place to grow up, you know, it, it, if you have relative privilege, you know, a lot of kids have, have had huge advantages here and it's been a lovely, lovely place to grow up in. There's, there's, there's great things about Irish culture for kids, but the bulk of kids, particularly kids of lower social standing, being seen as dangerous, being seen as needed to be, needing to be controlled. Um, and poverty being seen as shameful, you know, um, and and the punitive nature of this is, you know, represented in the mother and baby homes, in the Magdalene laundries, in the industrial schools. So we've gone through a process, really, I suppose, over the last 20 years of looking at that shame, you know, and, and thinking about what, what did we do to kids? How could we have ever done this? And yet, I think there's a certain kind of smugness where where we, we still haven't really brought this up to date in terms of thinking about What's our society like now for children? One of the reasons I was kind of passionate about trying to do this for, for with, with the paper was that that you know the Irish Times has a great record on human rights. You know, it, it's it's always pushed human rights. Uh, you know, uh, really through through most most of its existence, certainly in the history of the state. Um, and we've seen some fantastic human rights um, changes in Ireland and human rights campaigns. And I really started thinking about this at the time of the same-sex marriage referendum, you know, where Ireland really gave a kind of world lead in human rights. But the fact is that the single most important deprivation of human rights that anybody suffers is deprivation in childhood, you know, deprivation of the basic things that any child needs in order to grow in order to fulfill their potential, in order to have a sense of security. Um, you don't want to sentimentalize it, but, the, the, you know, the obvious reality is that this is not stuff you can get back. Childhood, if it's taken away from them, you know, cannot be restored. You get one chance at it. And we now know, so, you know, that I think there used to be a sense of almost despair about it, you know, what, what can you do, you know. And now we know because there's huge, fantastic, positive examples of how interventions work, of how you can really intervene at the right times in the right ways with children and families and make an enormous difference, not just to the now for that child, but to, you know, the, the entire rest of that child's life and the benefit to society of this. I mean, apart from it being a human rights issue, you know, that the child has a right to these things, we know that it's the single best investment, if you want to be absolutely brutal and crude about it. If, if we were coming here and the Irish Times was saying there's an investment that we can make in infrastructure that will have a return of 700 to 1,000% economically, <laughs> you know, we'd all be saying, why the hell aren't we doing this? It's obvious. We know, you know, there's enormous amounts of work, enormous amounts of studies done that the, the return on early childhood investment um, is of the order of 7 to 
11 fold, you know, because you save huge amounts of money on, on crime, on future health care. But also, of course, you get much better return if you want to, to contribute to society. society they, 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 they can, they, you know, they, they can, they can support themselves. They can be positive, positive contributors. So the human rights arguments, the economic arguments, the social arguments, they're all very powerful. And this is the year when we're looking at a centenary about like, what could we get out of all this period of centenaries? If we could focus on this thing, we could actually feel very proud of ourselves. Tanya, Finch has covered an awful lot there, but in terms of, as its name indicates, the Children's Rights Alliance, the purpose of your organisation mm-hmm. is to vindicate the rights which are which are laid out in the in the declaration, which I which, which I read at the top of the podcast. And I suppose one of the things I'm trying to get a handle on is it's not just you know how bad are we, but where are we? You know, in comparison to similar countries with similar levels of prosperity in the world, how uh, how badly or how well are we doing? Because you know we might be doing quite well in some areas and not so well in others. I mean, Vincent there talks about uh, the experience of the industrial schools and long history of child abuse and neglect. And in reality, there's actually 20 official reports documenting how we failed uh, vulnerable and marginalised children. But the Ryan report being the most serious one, showing that children, when they were poor, they were taken away from their families because they were poor. Sometimes they were taken away from their families just because their mother had died and it was decided that their father couldn't raise them anymore put in these institutions where they were starved, neglected, and when they tried to complain and they were abused, no one actually listened to them. And I suppose the focus of the state, uh, particularly after Ryan, was, okay, we have to make sure this never happens again. We have to fix the broken child protection system. And what we do is, you know, we set up a Department of Children and Youth Affairs. We get a Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, one of the first countries in the world to do that. Um, We get a new child and family agency, TUSLA, that's going to, you know, respond to, to vulnerable children in, in the home um, and going to deal with neglect. Uh, we have an ombudsman for children. We have new child protection laws. So these institutions that failed children, that decided that they wouldn't put their, they put their own interests before the child, let's say a child is sexually abused by a priest, by a teacher, they wouldn't call the guardy. They decided that it would shame on the institution. It was a, it, it was a moral failing um, on the person and not a crime committed against the child. So our focus to date, and certainly the Children's Rights Alliance and other organisations has been on that piece, trying to make sure that children have a voice and they, that they are visible. Now, the detriment of that, focusing on child protection, has meant um, we haven't done as much work as we should have on child poverty. What's happening for children in everyday life? I remember when uh, I've been chief executive of the Children's Rights Alliance for seven years. Um, You know, we had the children's referendum, lots of successful campaigns. And I saw those child poverty statistics showing that the numbers of children in consists of poverty, the harshest form of poverty, doubled over the course of the recession. So you had 150,000 children in 2013 in consistent poverty. I just thought we've actually failed. How have we failed these children? What should we have done better? How do we define consistent poverty? So consistent poverty is defined as having a low income uh, in, in, the re- in the region of about uh, 12,000 euros. Uh, and you have to connect one of the deprivation indicators. So what it might mean is, uh, you know, of those 150,000 children, you know, they might be going to bed hungry several times uh, a, a week. Um, they The heating isn't switched on. They don't have, you know, chicken or fish as 
part of their dinner. An invitation comes in for a birthday party and it just has to be discarded. There's no way they can get the birthday uh, present together for the child to go. So it really is, you know, really serious what children actually go to and it really narrows and limits their experience. And for many children living in consistent poverty, um, there's a lot of stress at home because parents are trying to make ends meet. Um, A lot of the stories that have been uh, pulled together by organisations like SVP have showed like after the recession and during the recession, what was happening was families were struggling to put food on the table. So parents were avoiding actually eating sometimes themselves. They're making decisions whether to, this is the week I'll, I, I won't be able to turn on the heating or not. Uh, making decisions about can I go to the GP this week or not? Can I hold on for another week or two before I go to the GP? Really hard decisions. And what that means for children is, you know, they learn this. They work out from a very young age, things are difficult and they're tough and they learn not to ask their parents for things. They might hide, hide the fact that they need a school book for school and they might deal with the shame and the stigma of being the one in the class that doesn't have a school book. And the kinds of people that are affected by being in consistent poverty, we know that lone parents uh, that don't have a social network around them, that are struggling with childcare costs and getting into the labour market are more likely to end up in in consistent poverty. We know that if you have a low income, so you might have a disability yourself as a parent, your child might have a disability, so you're at home caring for your child. If you're living in the border counties, if you're living in rural Ireland because incomes are lower, or if you have an older child, because it costs more to raise an older child, a teenager, you're more likely to be in consistent poverty. So that's the profile of children. If you look at why has this happened in Ireland, why we have the fastest growing economy in the Eurozone, we have done so well economically, we have had great leadership in terms of the economy. Why has this happened in relation to child poverty? And if you compare Ireland with other countries with far lower child poverty rates, um, we made a decision early on, we're just going to use welfare payments to deal with child poverty. And actually, if you look at us compared to other countries, we put most of our money there, far more than any other country. But the country so that's everything from children's allowances to social exactly. welfare to loan parents, yeah, various parent, kinds of allowances that are payments, all, all kind of cash payments. What countries with low rates of child poverty did, they have some payments like that. But what they did was they invested in good quality public services. So if you were in France or Italy in the 1940s, they would have had, uh, that's when they started d- uh, developing their early years uh, education scheme. In Ireland, we introduced the free preschool year, the early education uh, care programme in 2010. So we're behind in many ways on some of the basics. And and the result of that was we had the highest childcare costs in the world before these different programmes came into place. So that has been the underlying reason why where we are when it comes to child poverty. And underneath all of that, if you're doubly disadvantaged, you happen to be a traveller, you happen to be a refugee, you happen to be a migrant, you happen to be undocumented, you happen to be a disability, you have other burdens that you have to deal with um, from a child poverty point of view. Fintan, I wonder about some of the things there, listening listen to Tanya. So, you know, we don't do a lot of things here that are taken for granted in other countries, like um, free school actually being free school, as opposed to pretend free school in the, in the, in the, in the case of our education system, or hot meals for kids when they're, yeah. uh, when, the, when they're in education, or indeed probably access to a greater level of, of health checks and following up on those health checks. All those sorts of things, pretty, pretty straightforward things, which we don't do. We have this strange economy where we have, uh, we have great inequality and then there's quite a lot of social social transfers, which to some extent ameliorate that inequality, but perhaps don't address anything to do with the underlying reasons for that inequality. Yeah, you know, our system is really based on the fact that we, we, we have, I mean, if you look at why, how is Ireland different economically from almost every other developed country? And it, it, it's, it's partly to do with this huge inequality in earned income, you know, so, so we, we have 
in the developed world, we have we have the biggest sort of um, inequality of earned income of, of anybody else. That's what our economy produces. Uh, so therefore, the state has a huge amount of heavy lifting to do. Right? So, so the state, you know, to, to keep some level of, of equality, and the state's very efficient in one way. So it does a great job of with with social transfers, you know, with with welfare payments, of coming in and saying, okay, we'll 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 tax people and we'll we'll redistribute some of the income. So it it does that very well. However. It means that almost all its focus goes exactly as Tanya's been talking about on, you know, on cash payments, you know, on just sort of redistributing some money around the place to sort of make sure that the thing isn't grotesque. But then, you know, you 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 run up against all the long-term problems, all the long-term structural issues that are just not dealt with. I mean, as Tanya was saying, like the fact that we only just got around to having, you know, free pre-primary um, uh well, starting off with even one year and now and now two, um, but like, as you mentioned, like some of these becomes astonishing. The fact that we do not have free primary education. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing for a developed, rich country. We put it in the constitution in 1937, and we don't have free. It's not free. So I've got to, why? Why has it developed that way? Well, so it, it's developed that way partly because of a model of charity. So you have this sort of model of the state does all the sort of welfare stuff, and then everything else can be picked up by charity. You know, we we have a very long tradition which comes from the the church. It comes from you know kind of very you know a lot of our services were dominated by churches. They were not really public services in that sense. Um, and this is not blaming anybody for the past or anything else, but it's just just the way it was. So, for example, one of the reasons why we don't have free primary education is not because of expense. I mean, it's actually quite a small amount of money. It costs about $100 million a year to have free primary education, which, by the way, doesn't just benefit poor kids. Of course, it, it, it benefits every kid, you know, benefits every family that comes under huge stress when, when the, you know, back-to-school time comes in. But, of course, it disproportionately benefits those who, sure. are, who are poorest. Why don't we do that? Well, the reason we don't do it is because... Um, you know, there's a fear that it would be seen to be somehow taking state control of primary education. <laughs> you know, um, so in that sense, I mean, are we going? I mean, I don't want to harp too much about the you know the the lessons of the past or the shadows of the past. But does that then go back to things like the mother and child scheme? Uh, absolutely, and the kind of a, a sort of a, I suppose a coalition yep. of socially conservative forces plus the power of the religious institutions. Yeah, you know, so it's it's all that nexus there, and then there's a kind of inertia. You know, that these would be big things. I mean, you know, this is I think. One of the reasons for trying to do this campaign is that that we've got this kind of historic moment, you know, of the, of the centenary, and I think what we're trying to do with this is to say, look, let's just prioritize some of these things. You know, they're actually not about the expenditure of vast resources immediately. If you actually spend significant amounts of money properly over enough time, and they have consistent policies, one thing that's happened in this area, you know, is that. We've had fantastic programs like Young Ballymun, for example. You know, the Young Ballymun program was, uh, I think, 20 million quid over four years, five years. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of money. When you know, did that run? That, that ran up to, I think, three years ago, two, two, two years ago, um, for, for five years. And it, it was a pilot pro- project. It was incredibly successful. So what, 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 what it did was it brought all the people who were the public health nurses, the school psychologists, the teachers in the schools, the health system, everybody together. And it was for everybody. So it wasn't just saying, you know, you're a problem family, you're a problem child, we're going to come in and intervene. It was, you know, so what you do is you, you go in and you say, uh, everybody needs some help. You know, here's here's the help that you need. We're, we're you know, trying, like from the moment of, from almost pre-birth, you know, with, 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 with the mother, the, the very early years, 
up to going into primary school. And you're you're just kind of helping and intervening and, and it's it's consistent and coherent. Now this was an internationally tested program. So its outcomes are, you know, it was it was very rigorously tested. It was very, very successful. What it did was it got primary school kids going into Ballymun up to the national average in terms of their reading ages. That's a huge achievement done over a couple of years for a relatively small amount of money. What happens with that? Then they say, well, oh, that was a pilot program. It's over now. You know, Instead of saying, okay, we now know what works. This should be rolled out in, in you know, all the communities and we know all the communities that are going to be most in need of it. So it's, it's this failure to have a kind of consistent, coherent, long-term structured approach to trying to deal with some of these problems. And then what happens as well, of course, is that, you know, the problem with throwing money at stuff is that then when the money dries up, who's going to be first in line to suffer? Tanya mentioned this, this shameful, shameful thing that we, we doubled child poverty over five years in the course of the last recession. You know. Why? Because children are then in the front line. You know. If they're dependent on all of these welfare payments, if they're dependent on all of these very shaky systems, what's going to happen is that, you know, rationally, every one of us would say, look, if we're going to go through a national crisis, the last people we want, we want to suffer are vulnerable kids. I think, you know, the vast majority of people would agree with that proposition. But it's almost built into the system that that's who's going to suffer first because they're the ones who are most dependent on it. It's almost like, the, you know, the fact that in the famine, the people who are, most, who are going to die were the ones who were on the subsistence, you know, diet. They were dependent on the potato. He takes potato away. They're in deep trouble. When you've got these families and, and, and kids who are so dependent on this kind of temporary throwing money at stuff, you know, when you turn that off, they're and, the and was there an element in that that the, that, the, that the governments of the day, when implementing austerity, they they did their best to maintain the public. Um, benefits that were, you know, the, the benefit of unemployment assistance or whatever it might yeah, have been. Yeah. But but where they hacked away from yeah. was the stuff that perhaps below the it's surface. under the surface, yeah. Which were, are these kind of they programs. They were trying to retain the core uh, welfare rates um, and trying to protect them. But there were a range of different cuts that happened at the same time. So if you were a lone parent and you weren't working, your take-home your take home uh, income suddenly fell drastically. Uh, and it really forced parent, a lot of parents, they tried to get jobs, but they were in like it was a 15% unemployment rate during the recession at the height of the recession so they found it very difficult some parents to get into the workplace now some parents did some parents did and they did well and they got jobs and they raised their income but there was another group of parents that really struggled um, because if you happen to be in the wrong part of the country if you were in Tala you were near Ancasan you could get in there you could get part of a programme you could get upskilled and that helps you get a job um, you'll see Senator Lim Rowan like she's one of the beneficiaries of that and she went on to become um, a senator uh, but it's, but it's a lottery. You're dependent upon lo local groups, the activities of, right, of, right. of, of, of... I mean, one, one of the things the government did try to do then with, after the height of the recession was in 2014 was actually be really ambitious and say, right, the child poverty rates are too high. We need to address it. Um, and they issued, issued Better Outcomes, Better Futures, which is a national policy um, for children and young people. And in it, they said, right, we are going to reduce the numbers of children in consistent poverty by two thirds. We are going to get 100,000 children out of consistent poverty by 2020. And what you've seen, actually, when they've started making the investments and targeted investments, so like the Young Bally Mun, there's been a number of other programmes. They've expanded it to about 13 different sites. Um, 
um, after the recession. Uh, they also had, uh, they tried to restore some of the cuts. And there has been a substantial reduction there in has. the I last mean, about three years or yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, the stats came out in December. It's like 25, 24,000 children have been lifted out of consistent poverty. So what it shows you is actually, if you get the labour market going, if you, if, you, if you introduce key interventions, it does make a difference to children. And some of the things that you see happen, you know, for children in direct provision, uh, 15 years with no change to their weekly payment, what you see is a big change. Even in the last budget, you see them now getting 29.80. And it's one of the things I found most difficult in the Children's Rights Alliance because I get to travel around, I get to meet children and young people, meeting children in direct provision, talking to me about, I don't have any shampoo to wash my hair. I wash my hair in soap. I'm being ashamed going into school because your hair is matty because you've been washing it with soap. So it's one of the things I think that's made a big difference is, you know, sometimes a cash payment is important to do with the everyday pieces, of everyday expenses of life. But the also to give people some sense of their own autonomy. That's right, well. that's right. But some of the other things government did, which have been really important, um, like parents would have been telling us that they were avoiding going to the GP because um, um, because they just couldn't get the 50 or the 60 euro together to go to the GP. Um, and that, you know, for children from an early intervention and prevention point of view, you want to get to the GP because if there's a speech and language issue, this child has a respiratory illness. Would these children not, would, would their parents not have had medical cards? Well, the, the, if they're, the, if they're the, at that level of The income? threshold of, of medical cards is actually quite low and hasn't moved since 2005. So one of the big things that we did was we did introduce free GP cards for the first time. And that was a huge success about 93% of children under the age of six got to benefit and it's made a huge difference. And they are the kind of big ideas, the big changes we need to introduce. We can get that other 70,000 children out of consistent poverty. There are lots of ways to do it. We've suggested five different ways as part of this campaign, but we think we can get a lot more done if we get people involved in this national conversation. We want to hear from people, children, young people themselves, people affected by poverty, but also government departments, national bodies, anyone involved in this area. I think we can actually reach that target by 2020, but it involves lots more uh, leaders take it finding the money, finding the investments and making it happen. It, there's, you, you mentioned there are five themes and I'll, I'll, I'll just mention mm-hmm. them, but but we probably won't get the chance to go through them all in detail here, but we will kind of come back to this over the next few months. They are education, health and well-being, housing and shelter, mm-hmm. food and participation. And I mean, Fintan already made reference to the the free primary education, that that wouldn't yeah. be a, a huge amount of money in, in, in the grand scheme of things. But obviously education entails, uh, you know, a lot more than that. Leo Varadkar um, wrote a, um, an opinion piece for the Irish Times earlier this week. Um, he was pointing out that, you know, from a situation in the early 1920s when only one in 20 children went on to secondary school, yeah. we now have a situation where here in Ireland we have the highest proportion of uh, of, of young people in Europe going on to third level, going on to university. Some people actually you know, think that perhaps that's not the best way, the best educational opportunity for some of them. But setting that aside for the moment, there are... There, there are positive sides and bad sides to the current Irish education system. We know that, as you said already, the early years are most vital of most vital of all. But but there's huge challenges for children, uh, children who are disadvantaged, aren't there? As yeah. they approach their teens and they start to make life choices of yeah. various sorts. Yeah, I mean, and the f- the food piece is really important in terms of school. I mean, I uh, I go around and meet member organisations, and I was really struck going to one early year centre, um, and when I came across was the the, the manager told me about uh, they worked with three-year-olds they provided a meal every day for the children and they noticed the three-year-old stealing food on a Friday 
And when they did a bit of digging, what they realised, the child was trying stealing the food to get through the weekend. Um, talked to another member organisation, asked them, did they have the same experience? And I said, well, actually a slightly different experience. This time the child didn't steal the food. What the child did was didn't eat their lunch. They put it in their bag and they brought it home for their siblings. They were so concerned about their siblings not eating. And that's one of the things that really struck me is how many children and young people and teenagers, when we start talking about this in the Children's Rights Alliance, the amount of engagement we got from people working at the school completion programmes, the youth programmes, the secondary schools, saying the same thing during the recession and after, that actually there's a real issue when it comes to children that can't participate in school. You know, they can't, you, you can't concentrate if you're not being fed. Um, you, you, you can't succeed in any possible way. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're highlighting is like, if you look at other countries, most countries with low child poverty rates, what they do is they have free school meals that are hot, nutritious. Why can't we have that in Ireland? And one of the big barriers is we just don't give schools who want to do this the chance to build a school kitchen, to provide the facilities to feed children and young people. And we have to have everyone benefiting from this because you can't stigmatise the child who can't afford the school lunch. It seems to be a, a recurring point, is it, that we're not talking about uh, simply about provision being made for people who are in the bottom decile of the Irish population. That You're talking about things which are, and this may be because of the point of your organisation, which are rights for, for these citizens yeah. of the country. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a key point, I think. Um, I, I think, first of all, many of us have realised, you know, with, with, with the recession that we're all vulnerable to shock. You know, we're, we're all, I mean, families who think they're absolutely fine, you know, can suddenly find themselves very, very dependent very quickly. Um, but secondly, a huge amount of these, of, 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 of these, of these simple policies um, have a benefit for every child. You know, uh, if you're if you're going to give children, you know, a, a sense of participation in society, right? Our access to the arts, which is one of the one of the key things yeah. that's been talked about here. Uh, if you're going to, um, you, you know, bring in, uh, you know, Daniel was talking about one of the very successful things about the GP card for 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 the under sixes. You know, all under sixes benefit from that, and so you have to have a sense that what you're trying to bring in are systems that don't stigmatize, you know, don't say, you know, there's those kids over there who are the problem and the rest of us are fine because it's never been like that. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, you, if you, if you have a Republic, you have to start out with a very basic idea of human equality. We know we've had the growing up in Ireland studies, which have been going on. Ironically, they, they started in 2008. You know, they had, they got the funding during the Celtic Tiger years and all the systems were put in place. And these, you know, following kids through and the different cohorts of kids from very young. And what we know is that, I mean, absolutely shocking that you begin, you know, you, you could go into a room, you could strip, you know, very, very tiny babies naked and, and, and you could begin to see very quickly you know, what social class those kids are from. So it's almost like we're producing different streams of humanity, you know. And, and we know that's wrong. We, we, we know that that's incompatible with our, our values as a republic. You know, you have to start out by saying, you know, all our kids are equal. They, they matter just as much. They have the same right. And I think the value of this program is, I think, I think a lot of people are going to be saying, look, you can't you can't legislate for kids to be happy. You can't legislate for them to have good parents, and that's all, of course that's all true. <laughs> you know what this is saying is what you can legislate for is 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 a floor beneath which no child should fall. That's why it's called no child. You know, mm -hmm. it's picking up on the language of the democratic program, but it, it's not saying you know that by the end of this year Ireland is going to be you know. A, a, absolutely the best place in the world for, for, for all children uh, or that there are not going to be problems or that there are not sort of structural things that will take maybe some generations to iron out. What we're saying is that it's within our grasp 
actually n not that hard for us to place a floor under the existence of every Irish child, every child in our society. You know, uh, the, the food thing is an obvious one. I mean, it's just scandalous in, in the 21st century that we, are, we have kids who are malnourished in this rich society. Mm. The housing question, you know, is, is shameful. I mean, it's just absolutely shameful that we've got 4,000 kids waking up every morning in Ireland in somewhere that's not a home. You were reporting the Irish Times this week about homeless kids showing up in Temple Street and children's hospitals and having nowhere to go where they're being discharged from A&E. You know, and, and, and we also had the report from Carol Coulter, you know, in the Family Law Project again, you know, the, the, the number of problems that are, that are arising in, in relation to, you know, kids not just simply not having anywhere to go. So, like, these are the, the floors beneath which a civilised society, whether, whether you're on the left or the right or, you know, whether you're coming from a Christian perspective, whether you're coming from a, you know, progressive socialist, it doesn't matter in a sense, right? Does it not matter at all? Well, I mean, this is a politics podcast. Think, there is there is hard politics in this as well. Well, yes, of course there and is. Ideology, but, but competing ideologies. But, but unless you're going to come out with an ideology that says, and there are people, yes, absolutely, there are people who say kids are not equal. Who believe that there are inferior and superior people? That you're 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 born, you know, there's some kind of lottery of birth which comes from your genetics. That you're either going to be a wonderful, successful person, or you're going to be some kind of human sludge tank. That ideology is certainly out there. It's out there very much in 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 our time. Um, but if you, if you're going to be a democratic republic, it's not it's not an ideology. I suppose that's not what I mean. But maybe and I might put this to you, Tanya. It's, it's, there's always this disjunction, and it seems to be particularly extreme in Ireland. There's a sentimentalization of childhood. There's a kind of glorification of a childhood which doesn't exist because childhood is has many bad things as well as, as well as many good things. But there are harsh political realities as well. And, you, you know, it, it, it's quite interesting to be in a Western society at this stage in the 21st century because there are fewer children in most of these societies than, than there ever were previously. And that's for good reasons a lot of the time. People are living a lot longer. Uh, so the shape of societies have changed. There's a lot more older people. There's a lot of people, we hear a lot about, you know, the grey vote. And I just wonder about the competing interests in society and how they play and how you find that works for you because you're a lobbying organisation yeah. and you're in there talking to senior civil servants, to ministers. Like, what, what do you think the the actual hard political realities that they're facing are because you can make the ethical case yeah. um but what about the political case if 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 look if children young people could vote obviously they'd be they'd, they'd they be, be able to Leadership, maybe why not be able to vote at 16? You, you know, I don't see any reason why. I mean, there's lots of research showing if you let young people vote at 16, they become much more engaged with the political system. But I do think things have changed in Ireland. There's a huge difference between how children and young people are treated today uh, as they were 100 years ago. Um, and I think one of the things that was really important was when we banned corporate punishment in the home. So if you're a parent, uh, if you're someone caring for children in the home, you know, you can't strike a child in the home anymore. And that was in 2015. But I think the bigger piece is we actually do listen to children and young people. So, you know, Minister uh, Catherine Sapone, when Brexit happened, decided to get together a group of children and young people from north of the border, south of the border to find out what's your experience? What should we do? And what was really illuminating was they were as shocked and concerned as we were, really worried. A lot of children were living on the border, crossing the border to go to school, talking about their mobile phones. Are they going to get free roaming? I wanted to go to university in Belfast. What am I going to do now? How much is it going to cost me? And I mean, that's kind of, I think, illustrative of the change in Irish society that when the big political questions happen, actually we do talk to children and young people. And even very vulnerable children and young people. I was down with the Migrant Rights Centre recently 
and they work with a group of undocumented children. Um, and these are children who have grown up here. Sometimes they've been born here. Um, and they got a grant from the Department of Children uh, to work with those young people. And really life-saving work with these young people because what they are talking about is they hide the fact they're undocumented. Um, they they pretend to fill out the CEO form. Uh, they don't tell anyone what's going to happen to them after school. And what they've been doing was working with them, trying to articulate what's affecting them and try to come up with solutions and bring them to government. I think that's the, the real change that you're seeing in Irish society is that actually politicians do care what children and young people think. Officials do care what children and young people think. Um, and I just think we need to have to make that the norm. That needs to be the norm for everyone. So if you're a council down in Cork, you should be talking to children and young people in your council. If you're the Department of Housing, you should be talking to children and young people. And is that is that happening? Because of course that is one of the defining realities about being a child, isn't it? You're the only citizens of the country yeah. who aren't able to vote and don't have a direct input into the decision making yeah. in any way whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, do we need different structures to to get over that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one of the big changes is uh, is that, the, that I think a lot of parents are changing how they talk to their to their child. I know when I became a parent myself, it was a bit of a shock as it is to, to anyone. But, you know, you realise your two-year-old really knows what they want, you know, and it, it really hit home to me because I started in the Children's Rights Alliance around the same time. So I was like, yeah, you can talk to a child that's two, that's two years of age to have a really good sense of what they want to do. But I think that the, the challenge... Sometimes it's a really bad idea, though. So, sometimes, sometimes, maybe, but they usually have the right answer uh, to, to everything. And I remember actually when my son, I got into the local school and, you know, I'm like most parents, was really struggling about which school to get get my child into. Uh, and he was only four, so I was, I was a bit too young and talked to the crest manager and asked, what will I do? And she said, why don't you ask him if he wants to go to school? And I was like, yeah. So I asked him and he said, no, I want to stay in the crest. And I was like, OK. Um, and I think, I think parents, we realised that's what we need to do. But I think a lot of institutions, a lot of local uh, providers, uh, councils in particular, um, schools sometimes, they're afraid of what children and young people have to say because they're afraid that they might have to do something. They might have to change how they're doing things. So I think that's where you're going to get the real change. When this, what's happening at the national level, which it is happening, actually takes hold uh, and it's brought down to the local level. I think that's when you're going to get to see the real change for children and young people. I think one of the asks that we have is around arts and culture. Um, and people often wouldn't associate a child poverty campaign with arts and culture. Um, but we know, actually, that if you're on low income, your chance of getting to the theatre or local community arts group is slim because you have to have the, the money to do it. Um, and I went to working class There's a kind school. of a cultural barrier as well. There's I mean, cultural barrier. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I went to um, I went to school in Cabra and the first time I got to go to something uh, at the theatre the school took us to Cats. And look, it, it, it opened my eyes. It changed my horizons about what was actually out there. There was more than the telly and the beatbox. Um, and that's the kind of thing that makes a big difference to children and young people on, on low income. And you hear that from the ARC. Um, the ARC is based in Dublin. And they bring in children from different communities and they say it changes their horizons once we bring them in. And we should make that the norm. The ARC is a fantastic institution that I think can probably take 30 or 40 children at a time. Yeah. In yeah. a country, and in a country exactly, of 5 million so, people. You know, the, the, I think one of the points we're tra trying to make here is that, look, you know, it, it, we've got a lot to beat ourselves up about. There's a lot we should be ashamed of. We also have fantastic models of things that really work. Like the ARC is, you know, was one of the first children's cultural centres in yeah. the world. It's brilliant. Why don't we have more, you know, it's it's just, so we, we know what to do. It's just that it's too limited. Fighting words, which is actually being more rolled out, you know. That, that, across the country, that, yeah, they've got know, various centres across You know, it's, it's a very good example of how you can actually, you know, innovate. Uh, that was obviously influenced by some of the stuff that was being done in America, but it was one of the first places in Europe to do People it. People who don't know fighting words, you Google it and check it out. It's very it's good. Br absolutely brilliant. And it's fantastic for the self 
uh, self-worth of kids, for their creativity, for, you know, for their sense of fun, their sense of themselves. Um, the, the, so there's lots of great stuff. There, there are two big structural problems, right? One is uh, we don't have ways of thinking governmentally in the long term. So crisis management is kind of hardwired into our governmental systems. And you cannot deal with long-term questions of, of child poverty unless you're thinking long-term, unless you're actually thinking, okay, this is the thing we do in this budget. That will be a building block. On the, ne- the next budget will be this. The next, you, know, you have to be thinking at least in five, ten-year time frames for these things. So one of the things we're trying to do is to say, look, okay, here's the short-term goal. This is the thing we want to see in the budget this year, but it's part of of a, a larger strategy. And the other thing we don't do is get out of departmental silos. So, you know, housing is over there, health is over there, education is over there, welfare is over there. And we know, for all the obvious reasons, and, you know, Tanya's articulated a lot of them extremely well, you know, is that these things are not separate. You know. Isn't that the whole reason to have a Department of Children? Wasn't that the point of setting Precisely. that up in the first and, place? And, was you know, to, and, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very fine innovation. It's it's great that we have things like the Children's Ombudsman's Office, for example, which is also, you know, we should be really proud of these things. But they just they need to be scaled up. They need to be done on a, on a, on a much more consistent and coherent level. So, you know, you're not going to be able to improve the educational achievements of disadvantaged kids if they're hungry. You're not going to be able to improve their health if they're homeless, you know. So, so it, it's it's trying to get an across government approach, which actually, you know, to be fair, the Department of Children is there to do that. But one of the the political you were talking about the political realities. Let's come, let's be really honest about this. The political reality is that the system won't care if the public don't care. You know, why is a newspaper doing this? You know, why why should we not just leave this to to the you know, we've got superb organizations in 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 the Children's Rights Alliance. I mean the member groups and the alliance itself are, are fantastic. But what why why do, why should a newspaper be doing this? And the reason is because none of this is going to change if we as citizens don't prioritize it, if we don't see it as being important. Um if you look at the moment, politicians are afraid of older people, for example. You know, they're afraid of pensioners for good reason, as they damn well should be. You know, pensioners have have a voice and they vote, and 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 you know, you you can see the effects on public policy very often of that. Children, as we were saying, do not have a political voice for themselves. They don't have the vote, and particularly poor kids. I mean, I think one of the things that Tanya was talking about so movingly, you know, is poor kids tend to hide their poverty. So, so instead of being out saying, look, look at this terrible thing that's happening to me, even with their own friends, you know, we, we know the experience of kids is they're, they're going to school and they're pretending that they're living somewhere else. They're pretending that, you know, they ate a big breakfast that morning when they didn't. You know, we, 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 we teach the kids effectively to lie about their own circumstances. So who's articulating you know, and and we, is that is that important for you, Tanya, as a as a lobbying organisation, to have a newspaper, if you like, getting on board with this in a kind of in a programmatic kind of a way? Yeah. Look, it, it's a game changing moment for us because if the the national paper, a record, has a sustained sustained focus on the causes and the solutions and actions needed around child poverty, it re- really is because I mean, we're all small organisations. We all and, and there's some big ones in the membership as well, but we're we're all doing our piece. Of the uh, of the cog in terms of trying to address child poverty, and it can be a challenge trying to communicate actually what's happening for children and young people on the ground, particularly in these kind of situations. I mean, it's difficult for the public to hear that children are going to bed hungry, that they're arriving in school and they haven't had a breakfast because they've been living in a B and B and they spend two hours going across the city. Um, 
And I think what's really important and what's really needed is new and inventive ways to talk about child poverty and to talk about the solutions that can make the difference. And to bring in everyone into that dialogue. Like, what are the politicians doing? What are the government officials doing? What are the local organisations doing? What are the councils doing? They all have a role to play in this. Uh, We can actually eliminate child poverty in Ireland if we want to because other countries have done it. There's loads of examples of where they've done it and done it very effectively. And we, we, we are good at doing this. Look at what we've done with our economy. Look at what we've done on Brexit. We have done a fantastic job at Brexit. I know it's not over. There's no reason why we can't do the same when it comes to child poverty. And the Irish Times uh, campaign is really important for us because it provides a platform for different groups to get their stories out there, provides a platform for government to get out there and explain what they're doing and what support they need uh, to get those initiatives going. So absolutely, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for us. And if you want to, I suppose, get involved in the, in the dialogue, you want to join our national campaign, get onto our website, www.childrensrights.ie you can sign up for, for updates or contact us on Twitter contact us on Facebook email us Well anybody who's missed any of the articles so far you can find them all they're all collected as NoChild2020 on the irishtimes.com website and there'll be plenty more to come on that Tanya and Fintan thanks very much for coming in today And that is it for today's podcast Thanks very much to Fintan O'Toole and to Tanya Ward Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and remember you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be You can also find us on Spotify these days You can find me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually also find me on Twitter So until the next time, thanks for listening 